For full transcripts, translations, content notes, and resources from this episode, follow along with us on our show notes at queensmemory.org. This is the Queen's Memory Podcast, a selection of personal histories from the borough of Queens in New York City. This podcast comes to you from the Queen's Memory Project, based in Jamaica, Queens, at the Queen's Central Library. I'm Natalie Milbrook, Director of Queen's Memory, where we record and preserve contemporary history across the borough. We grow our archives by collecting oral histories, photos, and mementos shared with us by community members. Local volunteers who train with Queen's Memory staff facilitate and record our oral history interviews. We feature oral histories from our archives so we can reflect on and engage with the histories we listen to and tell one another. How do we carry each other's stories? What shapes our personal and family histories? How did we get to the neighborhoods where we live? And where are we in relation to each other's histories? As part of New York City, Queens has long been a point of entry to the United States. Thinking about the borough in this way, we searched through our archives to gather stories of migration for this first season of the Queen's Memory Podcast. These stories cross continents and move through decades of the past century. We share these oral histories to reflect on the histories of this borough, of this country, and of ourselves. Months. 18 months after I came here, the Civil War started. I really was thinking of this as a short stay. I'm here for my education. I'm going to go back home. I didn't go back until after 40 years uh, visit Sicily. I said to one of my cousins, I want to go visit the cemetery where my grandmother is. I remember I went to Abuham by myself. I'll tell you, I was like, I'm not going back home. begin our ninth episode, we're reflecting on returns, the places to which we find ourselves coming back and how we get there. We opened this podcast season with our episode on origins, saying we want to think about the many circumstances that shape personal migrations and stories. In our sixth episode on residence, we also considered our relationships to places where we live and our sense of home. We carry those thoughts and stories into this episode too, while we think about what's involved in going back to places and how we may or may not remain connected to them. As we listen in this episode, we can consider how relationships to places change as we leave and return. Let's listen. First, We'll hear Mary Toomey, who describes her family's migrations in Ireland and the U.S. as impacted by war. For the next set of oral histories, we're keeping with this theme of political circumstances, warfare, and migration. I, you know, I saved my money for the year, and I went home to Ireland for five months, and I had a great time. <laughs> Because at that time I was 20, and my, I had, um, my sister was 
24, 25. My other, my brother was 21. My other brother was 22. So we were all of the that that age. They must have been so happy to have you back. Yes, and my two younger brothers wouldn't wouldn't they. I remember they wouldn't they wouldn't come in from the field like they were hiding from me, you know, they were afraid of me because I was so different than they were, you know. And they no longer hide from me now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you think about staying? No, I didn't because at that time I was committed to my husband. How did you meet him? I met him in the Gatsfields in East Durham. Yes. And where is he from? Well, he was born here, here in this country in Oyster Bay. And when he was two and a half, his mom was never really very content here, it's a funny thing. So she had a, a six-year-old and um, they went back to Ireland. So he actually spent as much time in Ireland as I did. He, he came back here when he was about 12, 13. And he, uh, his dad... What happened is the war broke out and they, they weren't able... At that time, I suppose, you weren't able to come back. Like, the boat, there was no travel of tourists like or people like that. It was all military travel on the boats, on the ships. And because the, almost the first ship, I think, back in around 48, I think, my father-in-law came back and he brought the family back then a year later. He brought, at that time they had two children, more children in Ireland. In the meantime, my mother-in-law, she was a very industrious woman, um, opened up a store, a shop in Dublin. And um, her children lived between Dublin and the country because there was bombings at points, at some points in Dublin. So they had to send the children to the country. Who did they live with in the country? And they lived with aunts and uncles, mm -hmm. yeah. After that initial trip that you made back when you were 20, did you have an opportunity to travel again to see your family? I, okay, so, all right, I had three children within three years, and I did not go back until I was 40. Actually, I celebrated my 40th birthday in Ireland. And why I went back at that time was, for 10 years previous to that, we all used to bring out our father. The family decided we would try and each take a year and go back for a few weeks. So the first ones that went was myself and my sister. And at that time, I had five children. And, uh, but then now they were a fairly nice age, because I was married, you know, 20 years nearly at that time. So um, that was the first time I went, and I went with my younger sister. Uh, and then I went a couple of times on tours and always went home but several years later. Now, we'll hear Solange Baptiste, who recounts that her first plans to revisit Haiti were interrupted by the onset of warfare in 2004. We're summarizing this as the second military coup against the democratically elected former president of Haiti, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Between 1991 and 2004, 
the U.S. deployed multiple military operations in Haiti that ultimately led up to his ouster and involuntary departure to the United States. In the past 15 years, popular movements and government bodies in Haiti continue to grapple with ongoing concerns about past and current occupation, self-determination, and local governance. Okay. Um, you, you talked about how happy you are as a child when you were back in your country, and you also talked about how happy you are when you come to New York. Can you share with us some stories, maybe a story from each place, where you feel like the very happy? And uh, what, what does what was look like, like a, a event or a, or something um, that that you remember? Yeah, because yeah, both from your country and in New York. When we traveled to Port au Prince, it was different because we are living in a smaller place. No matter how small it is, we always have space for one another. We all living together. We always together, no matter what. People live to go to Port au Prince and come back to to our hometown mm -hmm. once a year, so we can have family time. Coming to America doesn't destroy our family ties. Mm -hmm. Most of the people live in Canada because of the French language. So we travel to Canada, we always come here. And when I get to New York, I find out everybody's great. It's a, not a big family. Mm -hmm. No matter where I'm at work, on the street, mm -hmm. I find I have a family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so family-oriented for me, is very important, and I hear I can see I have a family here. That's make me. That's why we always happy. Because okay. the most important for us is not how much we have, mm -hmm. is the relationship, mm -hmm. how we be there for one another. Right. Do you still go back to your country from time to time and see your family? Eighteen or? months after I came here, the civil war started. Oh. The country was destroyed completely by the civil war. It become now, it's not, I will not be able to work freely in my, even though in my hometown you could do it, but you have to do it with cautious. The last time I went it was 2008, I was visiting someone who was in the hospital. Living in America, for me now, it's just a safe heaven. It's a sadness to, and people who live there say, oh, you left at the right time. And I found out it was a blessing for me to be here. No matter what's happened, I, I know I'm in America mm -hmm. and I'm under protection and life will mm -hmm. go without any problem. Mm -hmm. Next, we'll hear from Luna Ranjit, who mentions the beginning of a civil war in 1991 in Nepal. In short, Prominent communist parties launched guerrilla warfare campaigns following decades of state violence and suppression from the Nepali monarchy. After over two decades of warfare and a peace agreement in 2006, a series of elections in 2008 resulted in the establishment of a Nepali republic, in which Nepali voters elected members of communist parties into local and national offices. Various parties, groups, and movements continue to fundamentally transform the Nepali state, with the newly merged Nepal Communist Party holding the majority in popular votes in Parliament as of May 2018. Thinking about connections between war and migration, let's listen closer. Okay, so what brought you here? 
to New York or to U.S.? Um, well, I first came to U.S. in 1996 uh, for my college. So I uh, went to Iowa, uh, Grinnell College in Iowa, for my undergraduate. And then I, well, I worked for a bit in Washington, D.C., and then I went and got my um, graduate degree, and I came to New York in 2004, and I've been here since. So I grew up in Kahandu, um, the capital of Nepal, um, in a working-class neighborhood. Um, my parents were politically active. I had a sort of a normal childhood, though, other than the, the part about my parents' um, parents' political activity, uh, uh, particularly my father's. Um, and we grew up with lots of cousins and uncles and aunts um, in the same house as well as walking distance and neighbors who had been there for generations. So it was sort of a very tight-knit community with, within a large city. What was New York for you when you arrived? Mm -hmm. So... I guess for me, when I first came here, I came here for my undergraduate degree, four years. I really was thinking of this as a short stay. I'm here for my education and I'm going to go back home. But back home was also going through a war at the time. Um, we never called it civil war, but basically that's what was going on also because of the war. Things were very, very unstable, and so my family didn't want me to come back um, to... Uh, and you know, we are not from a family that has connections or resources, and so going back and starting from scratch in a very volatile setting, I think, was not ideal. And also, like, because of my uh, father's political <laughs> background, I guess he was also afraid that I would get too involved in the politics in Nepal and put myself in harm's way. So my father, uh, parents, uh, my family were really uh, suggested that I stay back. And so I stayed back. Once I decided to stay here longer, I also wanted to have more do more uh, grounded work, like to be more rooted in a community. Following Luna Ranjit talking about her family's warnings against returning to Nepal, the next collection of oral histories in this episode is themed around family. The first clips come from an oral history with Antonina Cucciara, who recounts memories of returning to Italy and first learning about the deaths of her grandmother and infant brother, who had passed decades prior. Last, Esther Tobacco Costanzo, born in Astoria, Queens, shares memories of conflict over whether she would join family living in the Philippines or stay with her family in the U.S. How do family histories and relationships change throughout migrations and returns? Let's listen further. I didn't go back until after 40 years. 
after three years, I went back to visit Sicily. Mm -hmm. To your same town? So the same town, we went to Rome, but you know, mm -hmm. which I found out other things there that you, yes, <laughs> when I got back. Do you want to share? I, yeah, I would like to share it actually. It was it, after 40 years, um, my father passed away, you know, at eight years old, and he always says to us, Go visit Sicily, you gotta go visit because you got 60 cousins there, you all gotta go there. Being afraid to travel, flying, uh, he said in my head that my father, why did he want me to go there? Why did my father keep insisting you have to go, you have to go? I don't know. I go see the cousins. So we went. Me and my husband went for the first time after I was here for years. My husband, maybe 35 years he was here. So I took the phone book, the address book, all my cousins, went to Sicily and, and surprised them. Everybody, nobody recognized me because I, you know, I was little when I came. Only maybe my my aunts and uncles who were still alive back then recognized me. So I said to one day to one of my cousins, you know, I want to go visit the cemetery, my where my grandmother, my father's mother, my father's um, father is. Because as I visit people that are alive and, you know, having dinner and eating. And I want to go to the cemetery. I want to go visit. I go visit my grandmother and my, my father's mother, bringing flowers. And, and uh, my cousin says to me, oh, that's Nona's, that's Nona's grave. And Nina, she's named after you. And she has your brother in her arms. That's my brother. I said, my brother? I said, I have a bro another brother? I, ha I had one brother here. I don't know I had another brother. Okay. Well, I guess that's why I got my mother sick all the time, too, you know, because she lost a child. But we, she never, we never knew. We never knew because the child was buried in my grandmother's arms. We not, I said, what, what do you mean? Where's his name? It's only Antonina. Where's my brother's name? Oh no no no! Dad, you gotta ask your you gotta ask your mother. My father passed away, so I said you gotta ask my mother. What do you mean? What, there's a brother, and I I wanna being that I'm here, I wanna put my brother's name on that tombstone. If you know, so no, the back then they wrapped your brother, the, and your grandmother passed away. She said, but you gotta ask your mother. You gotta ask your mother. When I got home, I called my mother and all my siblings. I says, come over for lunch. So we came for lunch, and my mother, I said to my mother, Ma, uh, you know, I went to visit all my family in Italy, all my cousins, all, all over, and also went to the cemetery. My mother goes like this. My mother hits her head, like, oh, boy. I said, what's going on? You know, they told me you know, that I have a brother and buried with no name. In my, mother, in my grandmother's arms. So, and she started crying and she told me the story that this baby was born. At one month old, the baby got sick. He had some sort of fever. The doctor says, listen, the, told my mother, the baby's gonna die, it won't grow anymore. The baby's gonna die. So came, being, they didn't have any money to pay the hospitals or doctors, so, being that he's gonna die, we're gonna keep him, and we're gonna 
um, experiment on what happened. So my mother says, no, no, I want to take the baby with me and we're going to go bury him in, in, in the town because they were in Palermo, in the city. So, but we didn't, they didn't have any money to, you know, to do all that either. So my father and mother, before, before the baby died, they knew the baby was going to die that night. So before the baby died, my father went to sell his horses in Sicily, in, in the town, in San Giuseppe Iado. He paid the data cash to give us the baby. My grandmother passed away maybe a month before. My father went to the cemetery. I had the guy who attended the cemetery, paid him to open, to open the cemetery and open the tombstone and buried the baby and gave the baby in my grandmother's arms. And they closed it. I guess it was against the law to do something <laughs> like that. It's against the law. So my mother said, you know, through the years, don't you think that now then that we, they were in America and they go back and forth on vacation that, that we wouldn't put the baby's name there? Of course we would have put the baby's name there, but we couldn't because everything was done against mm -hmm. the law, including the dot, including mm -hmm. the, the cemetery keeper and everybody else. So, you know, they knew they had to pray for him, and that was, that was it. So that was very hurtful to find out after yeah. 40 years yeah. I went to Italy. Uh, so, I mean, that might have contributed to your mom. That might have contributed so to that, yes, mm -hmm. and also her mother not being yeah. there for that. Her mother. So a young girl had a baby first, and me, then the second baby boy, all this turmoil. Yeah, of course, contribute my mother being sick mm -hmm. and, and depressed. Mm -hmm. And not having not one sister or her own cousin, her own blood relative, it was all my father's side. Mm -hmm. They were very good to her, but also, these are the in-laws, mm -hmm. let's face. Mm -hmm. It's not like your own or your mother, you know. And so for her coming to the United States, kind it of was, put it back together yes, for her a little bit. Yeah, so, yeah. And it made your family more like a family again. Yes. Right? Yes. I remember I went to a Wuhan by myself. Mm -hmm. Scariest thing. Oh. I'm thinking, oh my God. So I you, from Manila to... We stayed together, Manila, and then once we hit Bohol, in the airport, they went to the city, and I, I went to a Wuhan. And I just remember getting out of the plane, and you know, it's an airport, it's a dual credit kind of thing. I'm just like, okay, I just need one person that I know, just one person. And there's a crowd there, and I'm like, all right. And some guy, hi, Esther, hi, Esther. I'm like, oh my God, I'm being stalked, <laughs> kind of thing. It was my cousin who was my best friend for all the years. But now he's all grown up and like he's a man now. And I'm like, oh my God. And the whole crowd was for me. The whole crowd. I'm like, it's an airport. Don't you people like have like people at airport things? Kind of the whole, both Toloto and Abuhan. Toloto's where my father's from. And Abuhan's from my, they all came to the airport to I mean, I don't know. I was going there. It was great. I was just like, oh my God. And he's like, you remember this and you remember... I didn't remember anybody. Like, everybody grew up, you know. Um, I was just like, oh my God. 
So we went to, um, I stayed with my Auntie Toria. And uh, we went there. It was, uh, I'll tell you, I was like, you know what, this is for me. I'm not going back home. It was a time that um, I had just gotten out of high school. What was my thing? Okay, so I did go to college. Um, college wasn't for me. It wasn't anything, you know. And why go to college if you're not really doing anything? So I decided to go to work and, you know, I was some little clerk typist in something. So uh, that's when I wanted to go to the Philippines. And so I'm not going back there. I'm going to stay here. I think after 20, on the 20th day, I got a telegram from my father. And he said, don't make me come. Don't make me come there. And I was on, because uh, I had sent him a telegram. I, my flight was due back in like two days. And I said, Dad, I want to stay. And I got the telegram, don't make me come get you, or something like that. And I was on my flight. <laughs> oh. I went back home. Oh. Um, but I cried, and I cried for like months after that. I said, why can't you just leave me there? And he's like, what would you do there? Because really, there is no, there's no work, there's no thing. And then I went, I went back to school and, you know, I did well there. So. But I tell you, I went, I went back one more time when my grandmother died. And uh, it's, you know, everything changes but stays the same. So it was like that. And again, I'll be back in two years. You know, I got vacation, I got a full-time job now, I definitely can come back. And then I was engaged. So then, and then, you know, you have your family, and then that's it. After mm -hmm. that, it's just mm -hmm. too hard. Mm. Thank you for listening with us on the Queen's Memory Podcast. Visit our show notes blog at queensmemory.org. There, you'll find full transcripts and written translations of this episode, and more to listen to from our archives. We've also added reading recommendations from Queens Public Library's collections, as well as resources from local community organizations. And if you want your stories to join those you heard today and become part of our archives, head to queensmemory.org forward slash participate or to our show notes to find out more. I'd like to thank our producer, Adrian Lara, and our composer, Elias Raven. A warm thank you to Ro Garrido for providing fundamental collaboration and support, and to Richard Lee and Molly Schwartz for offering their guidance and wisdom. Thanks also to the Queen's Public Library and the Institute of Museum and Library Services for hosting and funding this podcast. Finally, thank you to all the interviewees, interviewers, interns, and volunteers for collecting and sharing the stories that make this podcast possible. If you're listening with others and want to reflect together, here are some guiding questions. Where are the places to which you've gone and come back? How have your relationships with them formed and changed over time? For the 10th and last episode of the season, we'll remember stories of where we've been and think about where we want to go from here. Listen with us next time on the Queen's Memory Podcast.